Lord God, we, um, we hang on to glory and power and wisdom so tightly. But we let it go. Lord Jesus, I, I worked hard on this sermon. But it's worthless. Unless I let it go. And let you breathe upon it. Would you breathe upon us, Lord God? Bring us to life. Cause us to preach. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, I think over the years, I have uh, preached less on the book of Proverbs than any other major book in the Bible. And I suppose that's because it's my least favorite book in the Bible. It's been my least favorite book in the Bible. And I suppose that's because people have chopped it into, you know, a bunch of little sayings that they put on desktop calendars and they put into books, sell in Bible bookstores. They treat it like a box of fortune cookies. You know what I mean? Or a set of, a set of laws which they use to justify themselves and judge others. That's how you can use the Proverbs. And yet in recent years, I've noticed that the Proverbs say something truly fascinating. They say some fascinating things, things I used to discount as just, you know, poetry and hyperbole. Proverbs says some fascinating things about wisdom. If, if taken uh, seriously, if you take them seriously, it implies that wisdom is far more than a set of pithy sayings to cross-stitch on pillows or paste into a calendar or even write in a book, let alone used to justify yourself and judge others. Proverbs 3.13 Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Proverbs 4, 5, get wisdom, get insight. Verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Young's literal translation, the first thing is wisdom, get wisdom. Get wisdom. I don't know about you, but the older I get and the more I look at our world, the more I think to myself, yep, that is really what we need, wisdom. And that's kind of ironic because never before in the history of our world have we had so much knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are two very closely related words in Scripture, but they're not the same. Closely related, but not the same in Scripture and in our everyday thinking. The way we talk about wisdom and knowledge is very much the way the Bible talks about wisdom and knowledge. And, and so you see, it's all a bit ironic. We desperately need wisdom, right? And yet it's like we're absolutely choking on knowledge. We got so thinking much knowledge. In 2008, I shared a little video on the exponential growth of information in this information age. In the video, they say, it is estimated that a week's worth of the New York Times contains more information than a person was likely to come across in a lifetime in the 18th century. 
Then they say, for exabyte, four times 10 to the 19th power of unique information will be generated this year. Now that was 2008. That is more than the previous 5,000 years, just in 2008. In 2025, the amount of new data generated on the internet is expected to be 463 exabytes in just one day, just one day. All the words ever spoken by human beings, they estimate to, to amount to five exabytes. There's a graph of the estimated increase in data created, captured, and copied, consumed worldwide each year in zettabytes. One zettabyte is a thousand exabytes. And now who knows if any of that is actually accurate. I'm just pointing out that since Proverbs was written, we've obtained an insane amount of knowledge. But I kind of wonder if we're any wiser. We each know more and more about less and less. My son Coleman's working on a PhD. And I'm proud to say that he knows more about uh, helium isotopes in a series of hot springs somewhere in Peru than anyone in this room, <laughs> maybe in the entire world. And yet Coleman would tell you, well, that's not wisdom. Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom, get wisdom. Blessed means happy. Happy is the one who finds wisdom. 2021, we have countless zettabytes of information, but we don't seem to know what any of it means, <laughs> right? And we really aren't any much happier. Ever since the Enlightenment, we've been on a mad quest for knowledge, and we don't seem to know what any of it means. Sometimes we call that science. Sometimes, particularly in America, we call that religion. 1873, Charles Hodge, Princeton Seminary, wrote probably the most influential systematic uh, theology that, that there is in American history. In it, he, he states this, I quote, the Bible is to the theologian what nature is to the man of science. It is his storehouse of facts, and his method of ascertaining what the Bible teaches is the same as that which the natural philosopher, the scientist, adopts to ascertain what nature teaches. So you reduce the word to a set of facts. Pharisees had all the facts, didn't they? I mean, they like, they knew every word and then they did what? <laughs> they crucified the word on a tree in a, in a garden. Some will say, well, it's not just knowledge that we need, Peter. We need knowledge of the good. We need knowledge of the good and the evil. Well, I think that's what Paul calls the law. I did some research on that a little bit this week, too. It, it turns out than the, that in the United States of America, we have more laws than anyone is able to count. Nobody knows, actually, how many that we have. And that reminds me of my house when my four kids were little. We had more laws than anyone could count. And the kids always wanted more. Can I do this? Can I do that? You said I could eat ice cream in the living room. John, touch me. I'm calling my lawyer. We drew a line. He touched me. I couldn't keep track of all the laws. I remember making a law one day that they could only talk out of their bottoms three times a day. Or I should say, let me clarify, pretend to talk out of their bottoms three times a day. One night we made the mistake of letting the kids watch Ace Ventura Pet Detective in which Jim Carrey bends over and pretends to 
talk out of his bottom. And then our four children would not stop bending over and pretending to talk out of their bottoms. And I knew that this wouldn't go over well at grandma and grandpa's house. And I knew that a strict prohibition usually just creates a greater exhibition, that is bending over and pretending to talk out of your bottom. So I made one more, one more law, just, okay, guys, you can, but just three times a day you can bend over and pretend to talk out of your bottom. I made a law, but what I really wanted was wisdom. Wisdom, which would notice that grandma's getting a little uncomfortable, and so just stop, stand up, and talk like a normal person would talk in 1952. That's all I wanted. The law is the knowledge of good and evil. God wrote 10 laws on stone, gave them to the Jews, and you can read the story, it didn't go so well. But the first place we encounter the knowledge of good and evil, it's, it's not written in stone or on pages in a book, but hanging like fruit on a tree in the middle of a garden. We took that knowledge, and it hasn't gone so well. We saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise, to make one uh, wise. So, so we took the fruit, but now we don't seem so, so wise. And yet we still seem to think that we can get wisdom by taking more knowledge. But the more knowledge we take, the less wisdom we seem to have. Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Get wisdom, get insight. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. The first thing is wisdom, get wisdom. So what's wisdom? Where is wisdom? And how do we get it? Think with me, what's wisdom? Number one, wis wisdom is a gift, right? Does that make sense? It's a gift. You can't really earn wisdom. You can study hard, you can take a test, and you can get a degree in all sorts of things, but not wisdom. That's because you really can't earn wisdom. You can't even judge wisdom. It's wisdom that judges you in all things. King Solomon wrote what we refer to as the wisdom literature of Scripture. That would be the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. First Kings 3, Second Chronicles 1, you can read about how Solomon asked God for wisdom in order to judge Israel because he was tasked now with judging Israel. He, he asked for, quote, wisdom and knowledge that he might be able to, quote, discern between good and evil. This so pleased God that Solomon would ask for this ability to know or discern between good and evil that he not only gave wisdom to Solomon, but just about everything else that Solomon would know how to desire. So the knowledge of good and evil isn't evil. But taking it in the wrong way, is evil. It's the definition of, of sin and death, and yet receiving as a gift is the definition of something else entirely. Isn't that weird? Number one, wisdom is a gift. Number two, wisdom is now. What I mean by that is that it's a gift in each moment. For everything, there is a season, wrote Solomon in Ecclesiastes. There's a season for pretending to talk out of your bottom on camping trips with dad. And there is a season for not pretending to talk out of your bottom, like during a nice lunch on Sunday afternoon with grandma and grandpa. 
Wisdom is, is now. You can't keep it in a book to just pull out and use whenever you desire. You can't keep wisdom in a book, but you can keep, you can keep knowledge in a book, right? In fact, that's exactly what we do every time that we create a, a law. Right after Solomon gets wisdom, two prostitutes come to him. Remember this? Pleading for judgment. You, you remember the story. They both claim that a particular baby is their own baby. And so Solomon says, okay, cut the baby in half, and you can each have a half. One woman agrees to this, and the second cries out, no, give the baby to the first woman. Solomon then says, take the child from that first woman and give it to the second woman. The baby belongs to her. That's wisdom. But that would make a pretty bad law, right? Every time there's a custody dispute, declare that you will cut the child in half publicly, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can't reduce wisdom to knowledge without like killing wisdom. Wisdom is a gift, wisdom is now, but number three, wisdom comes with time. Even if we receive wisdom in a moment, those moments come in time. That's why we say things like, that kid is wise beyond her years. Wisdom comes with time, and it involves quite a bit of pain. So, of course, people will always opt for taking knowledge rather than receiving wisdom. There really is no shortcut to wisdom that bypasses pain. I think my favorite movie about wisdom and knowledge is a movie that I think probably most of you have seen titled Goodwill Hunting. Matt Damon plays Will Hunting and Robin Williams plays his court-appointed counselor named Sean. Will Hunting is a janitor, and he's a genius who stuns the faculty at MIT by solving this really complex math equation that someone left on the chalkboard in one of the classrooms. Will Hunting has knowledge. He knows about everything, but he struggles to know anyone, and so he's always fighting everyone, and he now has a court-appointed counselor. Will Hunting uses his knowledge like a weapon. Why? Because it protects him from pain, psychic pain. It protects him from, from, from pain, and ironically, it protects him from wisdom and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. When he first meets his counselor, he uses his knowledge of art and psychology to dissect his counselor's heart, mock his love for his deceived wife, and avoid talking about the thing that scares him most. The next day, the counselor takes him to a garden. Now, I apologize for the language in this clip, but if you edit out the language, you probably missed the point. Um, He takes him to a garden, and he says this. If I ask you about women, Probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. When I ask you about war, you probably uh, throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap. 
Watch him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I ask you about love, probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. Who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel. To have that love for her be there forever. Through anything. Through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand. Because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss. Because it only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. I look at you. I don't see an intelligent, confident man. see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. But you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine. You ripped my fucking life apart. You're an orphan, right? You think I'd know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? Personally, I don't give a shit about all that, because you know what? I can't learn anything from you. I can't read in some fucking book. Unless you want to talk about you, who you are. And I'm fascinated. I'm in. But you don't want to do that, do you, sport? You're terrified of what you might say. So Will Hunting knows all about love, but refuses to be known by love. Will Hunting has knowledge, but not wisdom. That boy's wicked smart, comments one of his friends right after Will Hunting totally dismantles this guy, at grad student at, at the bar in, in front of his friends to impress these girls. He's wicked smart. You can be wicked smart and use knowledge to crucify wisdom. And yet with wisdom, Will's counselor, Sean, performs surgery on Will's heart and creates something utterly new. Goodwill Hunting. If you saw the movie, you know that wisdom, not just in the counselor, but also in, in will, wisdom actually does surgery on each of their hearts through the other. Wisdom creates a communion called love and courage to keep walking, for each of them had gotten stuck in a moment of hidden pain they refused to face. I think it's wisdom that creates goodwill in each one of us. Goodwill is the will to love the courage to love, the decision that is love. So number four, wisdom creates, but with knowledge we often desecrate. When I reflect upon my own heart, 
and this is after the fact, when I look back and reflect on my own heart, I have to admit that when I lust for knowledge, I'm, using, I'm usually defending myself and attacking another. When I lust for knowledge, I'm looking for fig leaves to cover my own vulnerability and expose another's vulnerability by taking knowledge away from them. When I lust for knowledge, I'm trying to win the argument in order to save my soul. But when I've spoken with wisdom, it was in a moment in which I lost myself. All the fig leaves fell away, and my vulnerability romanced vulnerability from another, for we both had surrendered to love, and love saved our soul, as if wisdom is the logic of love. All lose and all win the logic of love. So number five, wisdom is a spirit to whom we must surrender. The Gospel of John reveals that the logic of God that is the logic of love, right? The logos of God is the logic of love. The, the, the logic of love, the logos of love, is the light that enlightens all people. That's John 1, 9, all people. Yet not all people walk in the light. In the same way, all people must experience wisdom, but not all people are wise, for not all people surrender to wisdom. Some try to capture wisdom, which is like trying to capture the wind in a jar or trying to nail it down. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon recounts his journey with wisdom. Listen closely to this, Ecclesiastes 1.16. I said in my heart, I have acquired, I have captured, so this had to have been after, after the event he talks about, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all, and I applied my heart to know wisdom. I perceived that this also is striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. <laughs> it's striving after wind, trying to keep it in a jar. The word translated wind is also translated spirit, that is the ruach of God, uh, the ruach of God, the spirit of God, and check this out, you yourself are a jar of clay. All our life we strive after the ruach of God, and all our life, the Ruach of God is striving after us. Wisdom is striving after us. Did you know that? Wisdom desires to know you. <laughs> well, let's just take a look at Proverbs, not just at a little chunk, but at a bigger chunk, okay? And this is like a theme that runs through Proverbs. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but, but, just, but just listen to it. This isn't poetry. I don't think this is simply poetry and metaphor. This is the gospel according to Solomon. Prince of Peace. Chapter one, verse seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Chapter three, verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. I mean, that should be a song, right? Vince, that should be a song. Next verse. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. That should probably be translated ecstasy, by the way. And all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Chapter four, verse five. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not 
not turn away from the words of my mouth, says Solomon. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Verse 13, keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Chapter eight, verse one. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call and my cry is to the children of Adam. She's seeking you, see, she's like hunting you. Verse eight, all the words of my mouth are righteous, says wisdom. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. By me, kings reign, rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. Verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited word and delighting in the children of Adam. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed or poured her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. So she's built a house and she serves bread and wine. I mean, what a crazy thought, right? Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remember in chapter one, he wrote the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You see, it's like they're the same thing, but different somehow. I mean, wisdom is alive. In fact, wisdom says, I am your life. Wisdom is alive. In fact, in the beginning was wisdom. It's like wisdom was with God and maybe wisdom was God and all things were made through wisdom. Wisdom is alive and wisdom says, I find knowledge. My fruit is better than gold. Wisdom is alive. But Solomon doesn't talk that way about knowledge. Actually, wisdom is life and has knowledge. 
So theoretically, you could like try to kill wisdom in order to take her knowledge. <laughs> and get this, you might succeed in a way. Dead wisdom is a certain type of knowledge, isn't it? It's knowledge of evil. So you might gain knowledge of evil, but you would lose your life, right? Because wisdom is your life. Then you would know and be dead, or at least like choking on knowledge. Number six, wisdom is a person. You may have noticed this. Wisdom is a person that looks an awful lot like, like Jesus. And now you may think, hey, come on. Jesus, Jesus is a guy. And wisdom is a gal. And you'd be right. Jesus is a guy. But Jesus also has a spirit. Actually, he has the spirit. The ruach. The spirit of God. In Hebrew, ruach is a, is a feminine noun. So maybe we're all male. If, in fact, we're the body of Christ. And maybe every one of us is female, if, in fact, we got any wisdom. The logic of love, the spirit of, of God. In the Gospels, you know, Jesus talks as if he is wisdom. In Matthew 23, he says this, I send you prophets. In Luke 11, he says, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets. See, he talks as if he's wisdom. And he talks as if he's pregnant. Check this out, Luke 7. After, he criti he, after he's criticized by the lawyers and the Pharisees, he says this. Wisdom is justified by all her children. I, I expect that that's probably you. Colossians 2, Paul writes about, quote, God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Jesus is like a pinata named wisdom, full of knowledge. To the Corinthians, Paul writes about the wisdom of this world in this age. He claims that God destroys the wisdom of this age at the cross, and yet there he reveals his wisdom, his wisdom. And then Paul writes this, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so I decided to know nothing, Corinthians. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he's crucified on a tree in a garden that can be found at the beginning of time, the end of time, and right now in the sanctuary of your soul. Number seven, wisdom is a tree of life. Did you catch that? Chapter three, verse 18, wisdom is a tree of life. And we know that Jesus is the life, and in Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So wisdom must look like this. Or maybe like, like this. Wisdom is a tree of life. Proverbs 3, verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Get wisdom, get insight. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. The first thing is wisdom, get wisdom. 
So, how do we get wisdom? You see, that's not just a question for two naked people in a garden 2,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago or whenever. That's the question asked of you in every moment that you decide. Will it be bad will or good will that decides? that judges, that chooses. You see, we think that we're judging when in fact maybe we're being judged. We think that we're choosing when in fact maybe we're being chosen. Perhaps wisdom is our counselor who is constantly hunting for goodwill in us. So how do you get wisdom who claims to be your life. Recently, I've been reading St. Ephraim the Syrian. Know him? He died about 1,648 years ago. Uh, this Wednesday, which happens to be my dad's 102nd uh, birthday. But I'm fascinated by Ephraim because he seems to see what so many just don't seem to see and what I can't seem to take my eyes off of. He writes this, God established the tree as judge. The tree was to Adam like a gate. Its fruit was the veil covering the hidden tabernacle. That's the holy of holies. So St. Ephraim read Genesis and noted that the tree of life, well, he, he pictured it on top of a mountain first, and he noted that the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and so was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He also realized that the garden was a temple, it was a temple at the beginning of time, the end of time, and with us on our journey through time like a tabernacle in the sanctuary of the human soul. And so he pictured the Garden of Eden as looking something like this. See, hopefully you remember this outstanding graphic from my sermon two weeks ago. Okay, do you remember it? All right. The garden had an outer court and an inner court which contained the wisdom of God, that's the judgment of God, the throne of God that is on top of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. He pictured the outer branches of the tree of knowledge as the veil, separating the outer court from the inner court, the inner sanctuary, which contained the tree of life between the cherubim on top of the mercy seat on top of the ark. The book of Hebrews tells us that the flesh of Christ is that veil which separates the inner sanctuary from the uh, outer sanctuary, which separates us from that inner sanctuary and the eternal life that is God. As Christ's flesh was torn on the cross, remember the veil and the temple ripped from the top to the bottom. We got in and wisdom got out. Wisdom is the logic of love. We took the life of love on the tree in a garden. That's bad will. And love gave his life on the same tree in the same garden. That's good will. That's the logic of love. That's wisdom who is your life. We took his body. We tore his body and the blood poured out. The life is in the blood. And so before 
we took, what did he do? He forgave his blood, saying, drink of it, all of you. That's how we get wisdom. He lifted his head on the tree and delivered up his spirit. His spirit is life. So we exhale our spirit and we inhale his spirit. That's how we get wisdom. You understand? This is the diagram that we studied two weeks ago when we talked about how the beginning is also the end, but we return and we experience everything uh, for the first time. Salvation, then, is not a decision you make once and for all time. Salvation is an eternal decision that God makes once and for all time and then imparts to you on this journey through time as you learn to lose your life and find it as you learn to love, inhabited by the logic of love. Hell is getting stuck in a moment on that journey. Salvation is surrender to wisdom who is with you all the time. Salvation is surrender to the logic of love. Love is who God is, what God does. Love is his decision. Two weeks ago, you remember we said love is three persons and one decision. That's the Trinity. Last week, Francis gave a brilliant sermon, a brilliant sermon on how Satan tries to trap us in a false trinity, a perpetrator, victim, and enabler, what psychologists call Cartman's Drama Triangle. What a great name! Ah, help me, I'm stuck in a drama triangle! Cartman's Drama Triangle, an evil drama. Satan tries to trap you in an evil drama triangle, but God invites you into another triangle, his triangle. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, lover, beloved, and the life of love. Now, Frances is a counselor, and so she gave some great examples during the sermon of how this looks, but it's next to impossible to think it all through in each and every moment, right? And yet, you don't have to think it all through in each and every moment, for the decision is near you. It's on your lips and in your heart. That decision is wisdom, the Spirit of Jesus, your counselor. She is not dead knowledge. She's your living Lord and your life. In Dostoevsky's Myth of the Grand Inquisitor, you may remember that Jesus is imprisoned by the Grand Inquisitor during the Spanish Inquisition in Seville, Spain, at least in the story. For pages and pages, the Grand Inquisitor unloads every possible argument on Jesus as to why Jesus utterly failed by choosing to suffer and die on that tree in the middle of the garden, uh, why Jesus failed and why the ch church had now succeeded where Jesus had failed because the church had embraced the sword and rejected the cross. The Grand Inquisitor's knowledge of human nature is impeccable. His argument is profound and incredibly convincing. Finally, he falls silent, longing for Christ to argue, longing for Christ to argue, and then our Lord stands, and without saying a word, he crosses the room and kisses the Grand Inquisitor on his old bloodless lips, and that is his only answer. <laughs> I would call that wisdom. Before you answer, before you engage, 
Perhaps you could just picture what is always true. He gets up, crosses the room, and kisses you on your lips. In the words of Dostoevsky, let that kiss glow in your heart, and your next word will be wisdom. Once the Lord told me in a very miraculous way something that I just really always struggle to believe. He said, Peter, I have never stopped kissing you. Sometimes my kisses are sweet. Sometimes they burn. But believe this, my kisses never stop. On the night our Lord was betrayed, the beginning of that day, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is the kiss. So plant it on your lips and let it glow in your heart. Wisdom has built her house and now she calls. Come and eat my bread. Drink the wine that I have mixed. In the name of Jesus, get wisdom. Amen. And nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. And so, Lord God, is a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. But I don't think it sounds much better than like the name Bill or Ted or Steve. It's beautiful because of what it means. Yahweh helps. So God, I just pray we'd believe it. Your beautiful name. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. And now I know that this morning I said some things that for some of you may have been new. Some of them been, may have been rather hard to follow, and, and yet it was all for the sake of simply saying this, that um, God is with you, and His judgment is always love. And when you become aware of that, truly aware of that, you'll get wisdom. You'll speak wisdom. You'll incarnate wisdom. In fact, you will become a tree of life. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous, the righteous one, is a tree of life. It's true that we took the fruit of the righteous one on the tree in the garden, but it's also true, you see, that there was seed in that fruit. The seed dies and it comes to life on the journey and you become a tree of, of life. Proverbs 15, 4, a gentle tongue 
is a tree of life. See, it's almost as if, like, Christ is in you and you are his body. In other words, all I'm saying is believe the gospel. I have such a hard time doing that. I have to stop and breathe and believe. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name. And if you'd like a prayer, members of the prayer team will be down front here and they'd love to pray with you. But if you don't want to come down and pray with members of the prayer team, I, I mean, I really think God wants you to eat a corn dog. And you can do that by uh, going out here and going right down the street to the Lutheran uh, lawn. Watch out for Lutherans, but get a corn dog, all right? So I'll see you in a few minutes. <laughs>